Welcome to the SysAdmin Show, the podcast that explains everything sysadmins do and the technology they work with. I'm your host, Dustin Raybrook, here to give a jumpstart to your IT career. Today's show is episode number 48, AWS Security with Dylan Shields. Well, hi, how you doing? It's great to be back recording another episode. And before we get into the main content of this show, just want to put a shout out there. Um, I am still looking for some help with the show. It is still um, difficult for me to publish these as fast as I would want to, um, basically the editing and producing. So if anybody's interested in helping me uh, produce this show, edit the show, um, about two hours of audio editing per month and using Adobe Audition, somebody that has IT and sysadmin knowledge would be uh, perfect because you got to have to know um, what makes sense and what bits to cut out. And uh, this is a volunteer opportunity. It's nothing that I um, am able to pay for at this time and I'm not really planning on being able to pay for it anytime soon. This is really just something that I do um, to try to give back to the community. But it is a great experience and a great resume builder and you get to I guess meet some people in the community as part of it uh, and just you know give back. So um, another thing I'm considering is uh, doing more YouTube live videos to share more content and to save time. So the the biggest challenge is kind of the 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 way that it, uh, podcasts work is you just have to record and then edit and then post and and all this different stuff. Um, YouTube is pretty instantaneous because you can record live and then it's just up it you don't edit it it kind of the mistakes and all and the video is already there um so i see that kind of as as a, a time saver but it was never my preferred platform i liked owning the the platform a little bit more um as and i like the idea of being able to share um when you don't have to look at a screen but I know not everybody is that way. So um, what format do you prefer? Shoot me an email, Dustin at sysadminshow.com or you know, shoot me a message on LinkedIn and let me know what format you prefer or if you even care. Because if nobody cares, then I might just do more and more YouTube. And maybe I'll take that YouTube content and throw it into the podcast at a later time, um, even without editing it. But I'm just trying to get stuff out there and I'm trying to improve my workflow so that I can do it uh, more consistently and more often. So today's show is a conversation that I had with Dylan Shields recently um, on AWS security. And we're going to go right to that. And then I'll be back with a couple of final thoughts. I'm here with Dylan Shields. He is a software engineer focusing on quantum computing with AWS. How you doing, Dylan? Doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. Well, uh, Manning Publications actually put us together, and I hear that you're writing a book for them about AWS security. Yes, that's correct. Cool. Well, that's going to be our main topic, kind of uh, talking through some of that book. Uh, but before we get into that, I'd really like to hear kind of how you got into IT and what your career path has been so far. Yeah, so um, out of college, I started working at a startup in the identity space. Um, that's sort of how I got into security. And from there, I started working at AWS in their security organization. Um, I started out in internal security and then eventually moved out into uh, the external security services, working on a product called Security Hub. Um, so I was there for a while. Uh, and then I learned a lot of good stuff about AWS security um, and then moved over to GCP, uh, working in a different cloud for a bit. So got some experience in a couple of different clouds. And then uh, just pretty recently moved back to AWS and now I'm working in quantum computing on the new Amazon Bracket team. That's pretty cool. So you're a software engineer, but your focus is security. Yeah. What kind of training does that require? Was that, uh, was that something that college prepared you for? Or did you have to do stuff on top of that to really get that security focus w with the software engineering? Um, I actually, kind of fell into it accidentally. I was working at a startup with really no background and um, we were working on a lot of security problems. So kind of just picked it up on the job there. Okay. So all the security aspect of your, of your training was all on the job. Yeah. Okay, cool. Sounds like an interesting career path so far. Is that what you thought you'd be doing <laughs> looking back? Um, no, definitely not. 
It always amazes me how, how our careers take such an interesting path. Right. <laughs> cool. Well, security is what we're here to talk about. Um, so are you familiar with the, the CIA security model of confidentiality, integrity, and availability? Uh, yeah, a little bit. So uh, I'd like to kind of use that as uh, kind of high level, because even looking through some of the chapters in this book you're working on, um, it seems like you, you actually follow that pretty well, um, right? Because I, I think when we think of security, we're typically thinking of like, you know, keeping people out, right? Right. Um, but stopping people from making changes, right? Keeping people away from reading things that are confidential and making sure things are available, like making sure a server is not being DDoSed or taken down in some way um, is all part of security. Yeah, absolutely. And so I want to make sure people are, are thinking about the availability side, especially when they're thinking about, you know, planning for their security. Because right at the gate, you get into the cloud and you think, oh, I'm in the cloud. Availability is not my problem. <laughs> so right. with, with your history and, and knowledge in the cloud security, where would you put availability as far as is it the consumer's problem or is it the cloud provider's problem? Um, I think like a lot of things, it's it's shared. Um, AWS gives you a lot of good tools, or any cloud for that matter, it gives you a lot of good tools to build highly available systems, but um, you definitely have a lot of responsibility to use those correctly and to you know secure it to the point where you know no attacker can kind of bring it down. Okay. And then typically with something like AWS, do you have uh, built-in like kind of DR, right? Redundancy where, at, where you're on multiple servers or multiple coasts, um, or do you have to pay extra or, you know, or, or turn on the, the failover features to be, you know, more redundant? Um, it depends. So, uh, I mean, something like S3, you've got built-in redundancy there that you don't really have to worry about. Um, but if you're talking about building some like web application, um, if you're using EC2, you know, you're getting one instance in one uh, location. So that's something you have to worry about. But as you move up the stack and if you use some of the higher level services, that's where you really get the uh, redundancy built in for you. Okay. So it's something you definitely have to know what you're getting, right? Kind of pay attention to what product you're getting and, and what it's coming with, not just assume that it's good. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So I've heard of things, uh, it's actually pretty popular of unsecured S3 buckets, just kind of being generally available, right? On the yeah. web. Um, so people just weren't paying attention, right? They created an S3 bucket and didn't lock it down properly or even unsecured, right. uh, databases. Yeah, that's, that's another thing too. Um, and that's one of the things where I think, um, sometimes it's just, uh, you know, not really knowing the, that, that's a attack vector. But other times I also think um, people just aren't too familiar with services like VPC and IAM and how to configure those controls. And so there's times where, you know, you've got an EC2 instance and you're trying to hit this other resource and it's just not connecting. And you're like, screw it. I'm just going to open up all these security group rules just to get the network connections through. And you're like, okay, I'll come back to this later and fix it, you know? Um, but I see that a, a lot where people are just, you know, can't get these services working and then end up opening up the controls really wide. So it's not that it's insecure by default. It's that during the struggle of functionality, they make it insecure. Yeah, I think with, with IAM in particular, it's really powerful. But that also means that, you know, you have a lot of chances to do it wrong. Um, and so I think... It's it's important to really research and figure out how each of those things in IAM works to make sure you're getting it right. And I think a lot of people that may be used to the on-prem infrastructure, right, and the same thing, right? You're struggling with an SQL server and getting it to talk to your application server, and so you just open it up, right? Yeah. And turn or turn the firewall off. And <laughs> right. when, when you're on-prem, it's actually not as big a deal. It's still not a best practice, but it's not as big a deal. It's less likely that somebody's going to get in there. Um, but when you're in the cloud, now you've un, un, you know unknowingly opened it up to the whole world. Yeah, and it's it's a lot easier, I think, on prem to where to sort of have that like dedicated internal network um, where everything is kind of mostly safe on there, uh, where that 
that concept gets a little hazy in the cloud. Cool. So if we can, I'd like to do a, a couple of cloud definitions because I see uh, three different types of cloud and maybe there's more that I'm not thinking of, but um, the typical SaaS, right? Software as a service. Right. Um, the, I don't know, this is called PaaS, P-A-A-S, <laughs> um, <laughs> where it's platform as a service and then the um, infrastructure as a service. Um, so would you mind just going through and kind of giving us a, a, a quick example of each one of those and where AWS falls into that? Yeah, so I think um, AWS has a, a lot of services, and I think some of them fall into different categories. Um, but when I think of infrastructure as a service, I think of sort of the lowest level services, like um, I, you know, a virtual machine or object storage. Um, so something like EC2 and S3 fall into the category of uh, infrastructure as a service. Um, platform as a service, I think of services like uh, Heroku or something where they're kind of running some of it for you um, and abstracting a lot of the lower level infrastructure away. And then software as a service is kind of running the application for you. Like Exchange Online is software as a service. Yeah, something like right. that. They they're running the software. They you're not coding anything particularly. You're just accessing the front end of the service. Right. Okay. So when we think of software as a service, you still are required to own some of the security, but a lot of that back end security is done for you. Right. And then platform, you own a little bit more of the security. And then infrastructure, you own quite a bit of the security because they're kind of handing you the keys, right, to a server. And yeah, you've got to build your own security on top of it. Yeah, that's definitely true. Okay. So I think for most of this, we're kind of talking in in the context of infrastructure as a service, kind of assuming that we're building up um, our own web apps, right? And building up our own servers and then having to secure them. Does that, does that sound? Is, yeah. that, is that how you kind of how you focused your, your book? Yeah, I think the book is mostly focused on that infrastructure okay. as a service side. Cool. So whose job is cloud security? Because we can look at, right, if we're, if we're looking at just the uh, the client side, so the person who's buying the EC2 instances, um, if, it's a, uh, if it's a small business versus an enterprise, right, who at that business is actually doing the security? Is it the engineer, right? Is it the infrastructure guy? Is there a security expert that should be brought in, right? And what training should they be getting? Um, so at a small business, I think you tend to see it's just the engineers um, securing it, or if you have some kind of maybe a DevOps team, um, maybe they're working on that. But in, on the enterprise side, you generally see larger security teams that are more focused on that. Um, but I think even in, in, in that case, there's still a lot of responsibility on the developers. Um, when you move into things like configuration as code um, or infrastructure as code, I think that puts more responsibility on the engineers and developers to secure the applications. Um, and so I, th so I definitely think uh, there's a lot of responsibility for the security teams and the engineers. Um, and then with that comes kind of learning out how all these services work. And I don't know that there are a lot of good resources out there other than just sort of reading the, the documentation on all the security features from the public clouds. I know AWS publishes a couple of white papers on um, well-architected security app, uh, well-architected applications, and there's a security pillar under there. So mostly these engineers just need to be security aware and kind of go after their own you know, training methods and best practices. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that is, you know, if you think of something like uh, trying to apply least privilege to IAM resources, so trying to keep those IAM policies as strict as possible, it's really hard for an outside security team 
to do that where they just don't have as much context about how the application or how the resources within the application communicate with each other where you know the engineering team working on that does and so they're they're in a much better position to be able to implement that um so i think if if they can be more security aware like you said that that helps a lot and what about the the actual business that's building the app versus right the the actual cloud service aws um who's Right. How do you weigh the the balance of security requirements between those two parties? Um, yeah, so with the public clouds, there's generally a shared responsibility model. And so uh, the it's the cloud services responsibility to secure the physical resources and um, any security controls that they expose to you it's their responsibility to make sure that those can't be broken. But once they give you the ability to, you know, create access keys and rotate them, you know, it's your responsibility to make sure that those don't fall into the wrong hands or someone doesn't guess your password, things like that. Okay. So the cloud provider is giving you a set of tools that should be functional and, and safe to use. Right. But you have to learn how to use them and use them properly. Yeah, exactly. Cool. You've mentioned I am or I am, right? Um, is it? <laughs> yeah. And I just saw this pop up recently in my Amazon account. Is this a newer thing or has this been around for a long time and I'm just kind of first seeing it? Um, it's a. It's been there quite a while. So when I actually go to log in, I see it now as, hey, it's kind of offering, hey, log in with I am, whereas before it would never offer that. So it must have just been behind the scenes and I didn't see it. Oh, I see. Yeah. So there's when you log in, um, there's a way to log in with your root account and then also to log in as a particular IAM user as well. Okay. So I don't have an IAM account and I've never done anything with it. So why is this really needed? What's it doing for us? Um, so IAM is actually how you control access to all of your resources. So um, if you've never used IAM, then you've probably just been using the um, root user, which has admin permissions to call any service. But if you, say, have an organization and you want to give a developer um, access to only be able to use EC2, um, then you can create an IAM user that only has those permissions. And it allows you to write really fine-grained permissions to call only specific APIs and only on um, particular resources. So is there a benefit to this? If you have a really small team, maybe a team of one or two that they kind of, they, I mean, they both share the same burden. Uh, so they both need to have a full access. Is that still gonna, is there other ways that can benefit you? Um, you know, maybe in that case you, you would just share a really, uh, super privileged user with the, with the two people working on the team. There's a case where you would still want to use it. Um, when you're giving permissions, for example, like a Lambda function um, or an EC2 instance that need to call other AWS services. For example, if you had a Lambda function that was reading from Amazon S3 and processing those files, it needs access, uh, which is granted through an IAM role. Um, so you would want to restrict that down to exactly the APIs that it needs to call. Okay, so it'd be a benefit for making service accounts with it, basically. Yeah. Okay, yeah. it's good to know. And who should be managing these accounts? Is, th is this something that falls to the, the devs again? Or is there somebody, as a best practice, should there be like a manager, right? Some some third party that's managing it so that the devs are hold account, you know, held better accountable to what security access they have? Yeah, I think um, in most organizations I've seen... Uh, Typically, the devs manage them, but uh, often there's a review process where a security engineer or security team continually reviews the IAM resources that are created to make sure that there's nothing excessive. Um, and in the book, there's a section on um, some of the ways to do those IAM resource reviews. Let's talk a minute for 
uh, about security best practices. Um, one of them you've got listed out there is multi-factor authentication. Is that something you see as just a, a necessary best practice these days? Yeah, I think definitely for the root account on your AWS uh, account, it's pretty crucial that you have MFA enabled. You, there's, I've just seen so many cases where um, somebody gets access and then all of a sudden you've got you know, 100 instances running mining Bitcoin or something in oh your goodness. account. Yeah, that'd get expensive pretty fast. <laughs> right. What about on the actual app side, the, you know, the, the user-facing app? Should you be building apps that have multi-factor authentication or only depending on the sensitivity of the, the data? Yeah, I think uh, it, it always depends, but um, in general, I think multi-factor auth is a good idea. What about this idea of least privilege, the idea of giving people only what they need to do their jobs, right? Yeah, so least privilege is, um, it's hard to get exactly right. You can, I don't know that I've ever seen anyone get perfect least privilege, um, but it's, it's a good idea to try as hard as you can to get there. Um, it, it comes down to if someone were to ever access one of your accounts, you, you want to make sure that you minimize the damage. Um, and so the more policies and uh, permissions you can take away from each of the users is, you know, another thing that an attacker can't do to your account if they gain access. Oh, that's a good way to think about it, right? If this account was compromised, what could they do? And I know that with least privilege, um, one of the challenges is, is it's just so time consuming, right? It's always easier and faster just to give them kind of a root account or full access to the, what they need. So it's always kind of that, that trade-off. Yeah, there's, there's always a trade-off there. And it, it is really hard to get least privilege right. And so um, it's a lot about just kind of balancing the amount of effort and time um, with, you know, trying to get at least some, some level of security there. Okay. What about credential expiration or the idea of either, uh, right, certificates or keys or even passwords that are expiring on a routine basis to, I guess, prevent reuse, right? If they get leaked out. Yeah. Um, credential expiration is, is huge. Um, one of the things you uh, see sometimes is things like API keys um, getting put into uh, a public repository, like checked into GitHub or something. Oh, yeah. Um, and so credential expiration is great in that by the time it's out there and anyone finds it, it doesn't work anymore. Um, and in, so we talk about some things like long-lived credentials and short-lived credentials, so things like passwords. Um, it, it's just a bit too much to ask for a user to change their password every 12 hours or something like that. Um, that would be crazy. So you, you try to find a balance there too. Um, but with IAM access keys, that's something where you actually do want to expire those credentials every you know few hours or so. Um, and that gets you a lot of benefit because the time that it takes an attacker to one, steal your credentials, and then two, actually go and figure out what they can do with them and then, you know, actually make the exploit. By the time that all happens, you know, you can have your credentials already expired by then. And what are your, what are your thoughts on certificate expiration? I know that, you know, the, the big companies are now pushing us more and more towards shorter lived certificate, SSL certificates or TLS. Um, and it seems like we're kind of down to a one year maximum now for browse, you know, for public websites. Um, are you using things uh, that turn that kind of automatically renew uh, SSL certificates on an automatic, you know, faster and faster? Yeah, I think we we're going to keep seeing that uh, get pushed further and further down. Um, I know there's a, there's a lot of better tools out there too to renew your certificates quicker. Um, 
uh, there's a tool within AWS uh, for managing certificates called ACM, and they do a good job of that. And I know uh, Let's Encrypt has done a really good job there as well. Yeah, on my sysadminshow.com website, I'm using Let's Encrypt on AWS LightSail, and it's every three months, automatic. I don't have to think about it. And oh, very cool. And it's free. <laughs> yeah. So, um, all right. And then reviewing permissions, right? This kind of job that no one wants to do of checking over who has access to what to make sure that, right, least privilege is being enforced. And as people change roles, right, they move from one dev job to another dev job, they don't carry their old permissions with them and have more than they should, right? Right. Uh, and I think it's, it's definitely a, a boring job, but uh, there are some ways to make it easier. And I think one of the cool tools I've seen recently is matching up your IAM permissions with uh, CloudTrail logs. So you can use CloudTrail to see which APIs and resources have been accessed by a user in the past you know, six months or so. Um, and then you can line those up with your IAM policies. So you can pretty quickly see which ones aren't being used. Um, so just there's some little things you can do to make that process easier. That's really slick. I had no idea that kind of a thing was possible. That makes just so much sense. <laughs> yeah. Because you're basically just doing the AB and you just any anything that they have access to but haven't used in X number of months. You, you don't have to take it away, but you at least bring it into question. Hey, do you still need this? It looks like you're not using it. Right. That's fantastic. And you, you, yeah. Cool. Um, how about network security, right? The, the whole idea of right, siloing networks, subnets, and VLANs. What should we be doing there? Yeah, so I like to make a lot of analogies between IAM and uh, VPCs, security groups. Um, you know, you can kind of see a lot of parallels between them, but it's really just restricting those permissions down to as little as possible. So if an EC2 instance me needs to make uh, a network call out to some service, uh, a web service, then all you uh, give it access to is you know outbound connections on port 443 or something like that. Um, and then you don't you don't have the risk of uh, you know inbound connections that you weren't expecting or um, people trying to SSH into your instance, things like that. So if I think of an on-prem infrastructure, um, a lot of times it's a very flat, right kind of network. It's a, typically all your servers are on one subnet, and they you know can all at least initially talk to each other. Is that something that we should get away from as we move towards the cloud? Should we think about putting every server or group of servers uh, that do one task in their own subnet on their own little network and then route between them with with firewall rules and route routing tables? Um, I mean, you can still do the single subnet, but I do think you can get a lot more secure um, by separating out the resources if it's feasible. Um, I think if you put you know, related instances or auto-scaling groups into a single subnet and you can restrict those down with firewall rules, um, you're going to get a lot more uh, security than putting everything in there. And it's just that you kind of go back to that same thing where if someone were to gain access to that subnet or network, um, you know, you want to minimize the damage in that case. So you still need to think about things like, uh, um, oh, what's that called? Why can't I think of it off the top of my head? Right. The, the, the place in the network where you put uh, the, the public facing web servers that are, you know, less safe and then they're firewall. Yeah, like the bastion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Um, so you'd still want to set up your, your network, you know, on the, on the cloud virtually so that you've got your public facing things, um, that are accessible to the internal, right. Cloud networks and the external public network, but they're more locked down than everything else. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So you really want to put some design together. You kind of want to be thinking about what you're going to put up there and, and how you're going to secure it before you just start building stuff probably. Right. Yeah. I think it does take some, 
put some extra thought um, before just trying to replicate an on-prem infrastructure in the cloud. Okay. And you mentioned VPCs. What what does that term mean? I'm not familiar with it. Um, so a VPC is essentially just a network. Uh, since we're virtual private cloud, but um, you can think of it as an isolated network. Okay. So is that different than uh, running different subnets? Like you can run multiple subnets on one VPC? Yes, you can have multiple subnets in one VPC. Okay. And then on one AWS account, you can have multiple VPCs? Yep. Okay. Is there any cost benefit to running just one big one versus multiple small ones or it's just organizational? Um, I I don't think there's any cost associated with VPC, mm -hmm. um, but you do get the benefit of um, there's no way to network between the two VPCs. So if you have two um, completely independent applications, it may make sense to keep those completely isolated. And then if I did want to transit you know, data between the two, um, I know typically right uh, internally on the AWS network, traffic is free. Is that still the case between VPCs? Yeah, so there's a tool called VPC peering, mm -hmm. um, which lets you basically poke a hole between the two VPCs to connect through the internal Amazon network so it's not going over the public internet. Okay, so it seems like, yeah, like you said, if you have two different projects, but maybe they need to do a little bit of crosstalk, you're better off separating them just to be on the safer side. Yeah. What if you need to connect back to your corporate network? Is there any good methods to do that securely? Yeah, um, there's a few different tools. Um, there's site-to-site -site VPN. Um, uh, and there, there's ways to essentially VPN between your corporate network and a inside of APC. Um, essentially like peering, but where the other VPC is your internal network. Okay, and is that using some sort of built-in AWS VPN feature, or is that a third-party thing you're going to bring in? Um, you can do that all with Amazon uh, AWS tools. Cool. Is that typically pretty popular for people that have a decent presence on, on uh, AWS? Yeah, I think that's uh, the typical way to go if you have a... Um, a hybrid cloud environment. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I see that too much. Most of the uh, organizations that I work with are wholly on uh, one single cloud. Cloud native, basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cool. And then, at what point would you need some kind of bigger, you know, bringing some extra security, like a web application firewall or the next gen firewalls? Um, yeah, so this would be uh, essentially when when you're looking at more advanced attacks or you expect advanced attacks, um, like if you hold sensitive data or you know you're just a popular application, um, and I think it's time to start thinking about a firewall. And so there's a web app firewall from AWS called WAF, uh, which is a good first choice um, that has some basic web application firewall features. Um, just just some slightly advanced features over uh, the basic security groups and network ACLs. Um, but then there's also a ton of more advanced firewalls that you can get um, from third parties and bring on to your uh, VPCs and subnets pretty much just like you would in a um, on-prem infrastructure. Let's talk about protecting data integrity for a second. Um, right, if we're logging people's activity, um, is that gonna allow us to make sure that the data that we have either in a database, right, or the actual infrastructure itself is is not being changed, you know, or if it is changed, we saw who changed it and, and, and when. Yeah, um, logging that kind of access is crucial for maintaining data integrity. Um, and it's a little bit tricky just because um, there's different logging tools depending on where your data is stored in AWS. So if you have data in S3, 
um, then you're going to want to use like S3 access logging or CloudTrail. Um, but if you have data in maybe uh, a database that you have running on an EC2 instance, you're going to have to do something like VPC flow logs, which records network traffic, or enable the access logging within that database, whatever it's Postgres or MySQL, whatever you're using. Gotcha. And have you seen any tools where people are, are taking all those logs and, and dumping them to a central repository where they can correlate them or check them all in one spot? Um, yeah. So I think there's a quite a few services that'll do that. Um, there's a an application called Datadog um, that does that really well. And um, Splunk as well, I've seen some customers use. Uh, and then some people just throw all of their logs or stream them into S3 and then search on them there. That seems a little meta. If you <laughs> take all your logs yeah. from S3 and put them on S3, they're just going to keep creating more <laughs> logs. Right. Um, that's fantastic. How about network monitoring? Um, right, there's a couple of things we need to monitor, right? The actual network itself, right? Is the network up or down? Right? Is it congested? Um, how do we do that? Um, so there's quite a few tools uh, for monitoring. Um, CloudWatch uh, has a lot of tools for monitoring, um, basically recording metrics around things like traffic, but is also does a lot of other types of monitoring. Um, and you can generate alarms off of that. Um, there's also a bunch of other network monitoring tools, uh, specifically on security-related attacks. Uh, Guard Duty is a one that's getting really popular recently, um, and they'll look for just different attack patterns or anomalous behavior in your networks and um, alert you to those things. And these are third parties. Uh, those are actually both AWS tools. Okay, and are all these tools just part of the package they they come with the service? Or do you license uh, so, them separately? Um, yeah, they're all separate services. So Guard Duty is something you have to enable separately. Mm -hmm. um, CloudWatch is something that generally your EC2 instances or whatever resources you're using will automatically populate those CloudWatch logs and metrics for you. Okay. I'm just trying to think about if somebody's doing some cost planning right, for their network and they get it all figured out, but they don't fig realize that they should be turning on these things. And then all of a sudden they've got some extra costs they're not planning for. Right. Yeah, so is absolutely. network network monitoring um, and right. The web application firewalls, those kinds of things are those extra costs they should plan for. Yeah. Um, and so I think AWS WAF uh, is a, a firewall that's on the um, less expensive side. Um, Looking at like you know ten dollars per uh, per application that you're protecting if you keep it under some number of firewall rules, um, and then it gets all the way up to you know tens of thousands of dollars for some of the big name firewalls. Gotcha. And not only the the cost of the product itself, right, but then the time and the expertise to configure it. Yeah, it absolutely. Could, you could easily get past what a developer has time to learn when you get into some of the networking side of things. Right, it can get pretty complicated. Okay, how about in the, well, the application level, is there anything extra we can monitor there? Yeah, um, there's a few tools. Uh, Amazon Inspector is a host level um, monitor. So you install this agent on your EC2 instances and it'll look for various different things like unpatched software or viruses, things like that. Um, there's also um, something I actually worked on was Security Hub Standards. And this is something that essentially just checks your AWS environment for different misconfigurations or vulnerabilities. So something like uh, you mentioned earlier, S3 buckets just open to the world. Um, this would go ahead and continuously monitor for things like that and alert you to that. That's pretty cool. I actually have a VMware tool recently um, that they set up for me that does that. I think it's called Skyline. 
and it just monitors your VMware instance and looks for best practices. It's pretty cool. Oh, nice. Uh, what about change management, right? The idea of anybody could go in there and make changes they're not supposed to. How do you protect against that? Yeah, so there's a uh, service called Config, um, AWS Config, and that'll actually monitor all of the changes to your infrastructure that are happening. Um, and so, you know, if you just want to have some log, you can use that. Um, and then they have another feature called Config Rules, which will let you automatically respond to things that happen. Um, so as soon as a change happens, you can instantly uh, block that if it doesn't meet certain security criteria. So if you want to make sure that S3 buckets are never open to the world, anytime an S3 bucket changes, this config rule checks it. And if it um, is open to the world, then it'll block that change. That's fantastic. So there's cool things you can do there. Uh, there's also um, different uh, auto remediations that have been built into Security Hub. So you can have when security certain security events come up, they'll show you in the console, and you can um, choose one of the options to automatically go fix that issue for you. Security response planning. This is something that could definitely. Um, it, it's really hard to to make time for this kind of thing because it's one of those where you're hoping it never happens, so you you tend to leave it to the end of the list. So, how do you decide who will respond to a security event and when? Yeah, I think um, this is one thing where uh, at least some teams that I've worked with like to use uh, like security event playbooks. So you kind of go through and figure out what your uh, what you think the potential attacks are or what kinds of things might happen. And you kind of write uh, just sort of a, a guideline of what you should do if this event happened. And then um, uh, you want to write it at the point where you know anyone on your team or in your organization could go ahead and perform this action. Um, so you try to write it, be pretty, uh, prescriptive about what you want to do in those cases. Um, yeah. And so I think, uh, it's really important to have those procedures or playbooks written down and you definitely want to have them ahead of time before the issues happen. Yeah. And sometimes it's right. Call, right. If this is the kind of event, right. If the website's down, call these people, right. If the website's under attack, call these people, right. Yeah, yeah. And it can be something just like that. Um, and then another big thing is how to respond um, to these things to preserve uh, forensic data. Because if you've got somebody in there that is trying to bring the website up and they want to you know, get the app working again, um, but they they just, re, you know, they just, you know, let's say they, they reboot it from a, a fresh image. Well, maybe they've lost some of the forensic data that would lead you to the attackers that maybe would be beneficial if you needed to know who attacked you. Yeah, and it's a tricky balance there between uh, you know wanting high availability, you wanna bring the application back up as soon as possible, but also wanting to make sure that you, uh, you know the extent of what happened and uh, you know how you can prevent it in the future. Right, But right. yeah, so writing those procedures ahead of time uh, can give you a, help you get a better outcome there. And it's never a great time to make those decisions when something's happening, right? Everyone's kind of going crazy. <laughs> so make them when everyone's level-headed and then just execute. Right, right. And then practice them, right? Do the round tables, practice them. And then if it doesn't make sense when you actually rehearse it, then you know make the necessary changes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've seen some kind of red team, blue team security tests where, you know, some some people go in and try to perform an attack and then you have another team that's defending and kind of goes through your procedures for what happens when that happens, when they break in. And I can see how this can be difficult, right? How do you know how much time, let's say you're a manager, how do you know how much time to let your team spend on this stuff when you got to get products out? Yeah, it, it's definitely tr a tricky balance. But I guess the more uh, big names that we see in the headlines because they got hacked, the easier it is to give the teams the right time, the right amount of time and resources, right? <laughs> Right. Okay, cool. 
Um, want to wrap up just kind of with a, kind of a follow up on the security versus convenience uh, conversation. Where like how do we really figure out that line? Right, as you know, users always want convenience, and it could be the the users could be the developers that work with us, and they just want to be able to get to their infrastructure and and you know spin up their test labs and all that stuff. Or the users could be the actual users of the web app that we're making. Um, how do we make these products and you know this infrastructure uh, easy to use and convenient but also as secure as possible it's a, it's a tough question and i think it's kind of a trade-off you have to make um kind of based on like the principles of your organization and where you want to draw the line um between how secure your application is versus how quickly you can build out features or uh you know, smooth the user experience. It's not an easy choice to make. And I think sometimes, uh, you know, on the, maybe on the product development side, you see a huge focus on getting the features out the door. And on the security side, it's all about making the application as secure as possible. And really you have to be somewhere in the middle um, trying to build a reasonably secure, reasonably good application. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You kind of respond right to the your your company's uh, age and maturity level and budget and the demand from your users, right? Um, right. I mean, we've seen this with companies like Facebook, where they're a huge company. Obviously, they have a lot out there, but you know, just not too long ago, they've had some pretty serious dings in security, and so I'm guessing that they've started to make internal changes to respond to that, so they don't keep getting, you know thrown under the bus for it right yeah you don't want to be in the headlines too much for that yeah okay so it's wrapping up here uh what are you working on now um so now i'm working on the amazon bracket team doing quantum computing um so trying to give access to quantum computers for aws customers uh so the idea there is you can write a program um in this new uh language from bracket and you can run it on any of the available quantum computers from a few different companies that are out there i have no exposure to quantum computing what what's different about a quantum computer i mean i understand that they're supposed to be fast but what's different about what a quantum computer can do than a standard computer you can think of it as there's a very small subset of problems that a quantum computer can do exponentially faster than a regular computer. Um, And we don't actually have any quantum computers that are fast enough to beat a regular computer yet, Um, but there's a lot of progress being made. And so we're trying to get in uh, early to be able to um, set people up to be able to use the quantum computers when, when they are ready and solving problems for us. So based on your personal knowledge with it. Do you think this is going to be just kind of one of those gradual improvement scenarios, or are we going to kind of just all of a sudden have a ton of computing power available to us in these certain, you know, in in this certain scope, but just we can do this one thing really fast all of a sudden when yesterday we couldn't. Um, Yeah. So I think we're going to see it'll, it'll be a while, but we're going to see some types of, for some types of problems, it's just, um, a complete game changer uh, for things that we just, you know, could not solve in the past, and we can solve now. Um, and this is thinking like, you know, optimal solutions or exact solutions to certain optimization problems. Um, a lot of things in like uh, quantum chemistry, uh, just a lot of modeling problems in physics and chemistry that just aren't really feasible to do now. Um, we will be able to do on quantum computers. All right. So how can we find or follow you? Um, I am on LinkedIn. Dylan Shields on LinkedIn. I'm going to be sure to put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, thanks a lot. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. Great to be on. Uh, really appreciate you having me. So the more I learn about the cloud, you know, AWS and Azure, um, the more I want to get involved with it. And I'm really just not at a place right now 
to put a lot of workloads into the cloud. I'm, I'm working with Azure AD. I'm working with AWS a little bit, as I mentioned, with LightSail personally, and a little bit with um, their AWS uh, Route 53 with their DNS uh, management. But I'm not really putting a lot of compute there, and I really want to. So I'm looking forward to when I get a chance to do that. Dylan has really found a great specialization with quantum computing, and it's cool to see him go kind of back, back and forth um, between some major uh, providers. I believe he was with Amazon for a little while and then went to Google, and now he's back with Amazon. That's just cool to see somebody you know, kind of working, um, working in high-end jobs between high-end uh, employers. And um, he definitely knows his way around AWS security as well. So we really can't treat security as an afterthought anymore. It's not an add-on. It's nothing you can bolt on properly. We really have to design solutions with security integrated from the beginning. And I know it takes longer, it costs more, and it's hard to prove the benefit of that extra security because if everything goes well, nothing happens, right? You don't get hacked. Um, but it's the right thing to do. And more and more, if you're not, integrating with security, you're going to get hacked. So um, I see this a lot like um, saving for retirement or eating healthy and exercise um, without that instant negative feedback. All right, you, you eat a donut, right? Or you, or you don't save for retirement for a year. Right away, you don't feel the pain of that. Um, you don't really have the immediate negative feedback. But if you do that kind of activity over many years, then you're likely to see some uh, some of the results uh, of those decisions. So it's the same thing with security. If you don't design a system of security right away, you're not going to see an issue, uh, most likely. But um, as you um, grow, and maybe you're in a startup, and then as your solution grows and it becomes more and more notable, then the security issues that are now part of your design are are really um, there and stuck. And now you have to do a complete redesign to get them out. So that's because you've just built more and more on that, on that design with no security or poor security. Well, I want to hear from you. Questions or just to say hi, send me emails to Dustin at sysadminshow.com. Follow me on LinkedIn. Follow me on Twitter at sysadminshow. And until next time, I encourage you to never stop learning.